in where his heart was at and why God used him in such a big way is because he wasn't jostling for position. He was just allowing himself to be in the right, restful place, trusting God, even if it didn't look like it was going right, despite how things looked, he was trusting God. And that's what today is all about. If you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you weren't here last week, uh, two weeks ago in fact, we started a new seven-part series on the letter to the Thessalonians, first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, If you can't find it, there's an index at the front of your Bible. And... uh, (laughs) Um, let's just read it, and then I'll explain a little bit more. Just to set the scene, of course, I explained last time that this is a very baby church. This church in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas had rocked up into this massive great uh, city in northern Greece, and uh, it's a very prestigious and influential city. And about AD 49, they rocked up, and within about two and a half weeks, barely, a church had started, people had got saved, and the devout Jews in the city got the right ump. They were not happy. Riots, violent mobs, and very quickly, for the sake of the people who they were going to leave behind, Paul and Silas had to go. So within just barely over a fortnight, a church has started, but amidst trouble, amidst persecution. And so a couple of years later, about AD 51, this is probably one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, Paul is writing back to these people because he's heard an encouraging report from Timothy who's been there to see how it's going and he says, that baby fledgling church you left behind are doing well. The baton, remember I, ran, I did my relay race and nearly got an asthma attack. The, the baton that Paul had passed on to the people, the believers, the new believers in Thessalonica, they were now passing that baton on to others and, to ma- and making a, an impact across the region and further abroad as well. So Paul is really encouraged and he was now continues writing this letter and that theme continues in a new way here. He brings up some similar things. Last time I mentioned about idols. It comes up more specifically here and this is what Paul then draws out after his introduction. We're going to read um, most of chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 16. So this is Paul himself. He's saying, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, is another story, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. There were violent mobs, remember? For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exalted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 
For you, brothers, became imitators or followers of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. Let me just pray. Lord, we, as Paul says here, this weren't just words, but this is the true word of God, that the believers recognised and received it as that. Lord, again, here, now, we recognise this as your true word. We honour your scripture, we honour your Bible as a revelation direct from God's heart through men and their quills. Lord, we trust this is from you, and so therefore we trust that it will speak to us. We trust that it will challenge us and provoke us. We trust that it will hit the spot that's appropriate to each one of us in each unique way, where you want to meet us. Lord, each one of us in this room, may you speak to us. May you show us what you want us to do. May you reveal things to us that we've been blind to. May you show us where you want us to grow. We humbly ask by Holy Spirit's help. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, I was talking earlier about a posture of heart, Paul's posture of heart. And we're going to, by the end of this, we'll come back to seeing evidence in this thread about this part of the passage where um, Paul reveals what, actually where his heart lies. But before that, we want to find out why and what it is he's been avoiding. And it, it begs the question what compels us? What is it that drives our choices? When we face up against big things in life or sometimes the little moments. There are always opportunities to honour God or to run after something else. We all face that. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Are we driven or are we called? And I know there's an easy holy answer to that. Well, of course, we're God's children. We're called. We don't always act like that, do we? Old habits die hard and sometimes we can discover we've been driven by something else in our choices. And the answer, if we're genuinely honest with ourselves, it's not all the time. Sometimes we're genuinely running after God. Other times something trips up. If we're genuinely honest with ourselves about the things we wrestle with in our hearts, we then discover little gods that are still at play, idols that are still at work in our lives, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not yet a Christian. It's quite sobering, but it's really important that we look at these things and not remain blind to them. So we're going to talk about idols. Last time I talked about idols. An idol is just a god. Something that sits, either for a moment or for a long season, sits on the throne of your heart in place of God. And uh, there's three in particular here that Paul actually brings up that he's managed to avoid, which has placed his heart in the right place. And the three are flattery. This is about when other people sit on the throne of your heart in a moment. I want to talk about greed. This is when stuff, material things, money, sits on the throne of your heart and rules your choices, either for a moment or for a season or for a lifetime. The third one he picks up specifically here is glory. This is about status. This is actually about ourselves sitting on the throne. So, I'm going to talk about... And last time I ran around with my baton, we talked about sports, didn't we? This time I'm going to talk about sports. I will do no exercise, I can promise you. You won't have to... Any first aiders won't have to be on standby. But I will talk about a couple of sportsmen. There you go, how's that? I'm going to talk about one called Henry and one called Gavin. You can try and rack your brain, see if you can work out which ones I'm talking about. I'll come across those in a minute. But first of all, let's look at these three things. There's flattery, greed, and glory. First one, flattery. This is when other people sit on the thrones of our hearts and actually we allow them to rule our choices. Flattery, 
will get you everywhere, says the phrase, doesn't it? Yes, Paul didn't think so. What is he saying? Verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery. As you know, he says, it says it's evident to you. Never came with words of flattery. He didn't think that, wor- that flattery gets you everywhere. He thought there was something more important. He didn't try and make things happen. He allowed God to let things happen. And this word flattery uh, <coughs> is related to the word to fawn, to fawn over, to kind of stroke their arm and wish them well and make sure they've noticed that you're loving them up. And it's, it, it kind of relates to, um, it's about seeking notice. It's about making sure you're noticed by the person who you want to get the attention from. You want to get favour from them. And it, it, it paints the picture of courtiers in a, in a royal court with their king. And they're doing everything they can to bend over backwards to make sure the king's happy and that he's noticed them making him happy. And I'm sure all of us at some point in our lives have been prone to flattery of other people. We try and butter them up so they like us more, so they notice us more, so we can be their friend. Hands up who hasn't done that. We've all done it, haven't we? We're all prone to it, absolutely. Here's the first sportsman, Henry, who's a cricket fan. Any cricket fans in the house? Who's heard of Henry Alonga? Ah, you see, there you go. Henry Alonga, a Zimbabwe player. He was the first black cricketer on the Zimbabwe cricket team. Now, Henry's an interesting character. I was speaking to someone yesterday who's quite involved in Christians and cricket on the international stage, and he said the whole point of Christians and cricket was that you're meant to be one of the lads up with the banter, first one to get the round in, always the life and soul of the party, brilliant on the pitch, everyone loves you, charismatic, and you follow Jesus. Henry Alonga was a born-again Christian. He didn't play like that. He would not play that game. In fact, all his cricket teammates hated him. They actually they just did not like the guy. He was not... Half the time they wouldn't even talk to him. He used to wear black armbands to protest against Robert Mugabe's government. He used to hand out Christian tracts and keep trying to preach about Jesus and share the love of Christ, but he wouldn't be first down the bar to go and get drunk with them and he wouldn't be the life and soul of the party necessarily. He just wanted to stand firm for who he was and not play that game. And they hated him for it. He would not flatter them. However, whenever one of them broke up with their other half or they faced a crisis or some part of their life started to crumble, who was the one guy they went to for help and counsel? Henry. Proverbs 28, verse 23. Proverbs 28, verse 23 says, Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favour than he who flatters with his tongue. Actually, we think we're gaining favour by trying to butter people up. But actually, it's always false it's always superficial. If you stand firm for who you are, regardless of what other people think of you, this isn't about being arrogant. I don't mean like that. That's just odious and offensive. <laughs> That's different. But when you're willing to humbly stand up for who you are and not just try and win people over because they sit on the throne of your heart, actually, surprisingly, if those people are genuine, you're going their respect anyway for God's glory. It's a big difference. See, this is different to encouragement as well. just need to point that out before we move on. Encouraging someone isn't buttering them up. Encouraging them is bigging them up, helping them to see what they're good at, helping them in confidence. It, it, it propels people and blesses people. Encouragement is good. Flattery is bigging yourself up in their eyes. That's different. So don't stop encouraging people and don't try to be arrogant. These are all very different things. Flattery 
is about other people being on the throne of your heart and that rules your choices, who you go and hang with because you want, you want that person, you want to be their friend and you want them to notice you or you want to get something out of them. That's flattery. Flattery won't get you everywhere, it's just the phrase says so. Flattery, that's one, that's when other people can rule the choices in your heart. The second one that Paul mentions is also in verse 5, is greed. It says, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. He says, God is witness. Now, greed is very deceptive, as we'll find out in a sec. We can all think we're not greedy people. But actually, particularly in this Western culture, it gets in us. Stuff, money, material things, more. And I'll get more. And when I've got more, what do I want? More. <laughs> it proves it, doesn't it? It never satisfies. And yet we're all prone to it, particularly in this part of the world. For example, if you're struggling to pay the bills, what's your first thought? Is it how can I earn more to pay those bills and live up to the lifestyle I've already got? Or is it do I really need all the stuff I'm buying? It's a good question. Is your first thought, do I need to earn more to keep up with the Joneses? Or do I just not need the stuff I think I'm needing? It's a good question to ask ourselves. Now, greed isn't always about wanting bad stuff. Money it's in itself is neutral. Money is the root of all evil. Money isn't evil. It's neutral. It's just a thing. It's a currency. You can want good things, but they can still become an idol in your life. It can be okay to want a bigger house. That's absolutely fine. Why do you want it? Because that's the thing that will make you happy rather than God? Because you want a bigger house? Because your cousin's got, just got a bigger house and you want to one-up them? Or you want to do something to your house because your neighbour's done something to your house and you want the better kitchen? Or, or do you just want a bigger house because you need more space for a growing family? Or you want to provide more in terms of hospitality and having people come in and stay with you? If, depending on what the reason is, reveals whether it's a godly desire or whether it's actually an idol. Stuff. Money, things, adverts are pouring our way all the time. We don't even realise. You're walking away, go, oh, I think I need something just because my advert told me. And yet Paul, he even points out how insidious this can be because he, he doesn't say we didn't come to you with greed. He says, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Pretext means a mask. And actually, we can, it comes disguised and actually we can be blind to it ourselves. When you're making your tax return, do you declare every little last penny or do you look for a bit of wriggle room because you just want to keep the tax bill low? We can all be prone to that temptation, even un unconsciously. I won't think about that bit. Or, for example, how much, how willing and easily do you give to charity? Or it's not so much how much of, a cl of your clause do you have in your cash, how much does your cash have clause in you? How much do you give away to charity? How much do you tithe to the church? How much do you give generously? When people ask you for it, sometimes you haven't got it, and that's fine. God's not worried about the number. It's just about how willingly you let go of it. Whether it's one pound, a thousand pounds, ten thousand pounds, it's not the number, it's how much of its clause it's got in you. That's the question. I know um, Jenny's mum and dad, when they're, they're over in Spain, a lot of their neighbours over there, um, the, all of them, all of them are constantly telling Ray and Gloria about which benefits they can claim if they say X, Y and Z on the form. Actually, that was, that's fraudulent and that's, that's greed. You can get this out of the state. You've paid into it all this time. It's your turn. That's the attitude. That's actually an idol. That's greed, isn't it? It's not just theft. theft. It's fraud. It's theft. 
But also, it's more than theft. There's an idol, there's a God residing underneath those choices that's driving. It's what's been behind our economic collapse over the past five, seven, ten years in this part of the world. It's all about greed. Slap it on the credit card, pay it off later. And if you can't pay it off and you get into so much serious debt, you can go bankrupt and you won't have to pay it anyway. Excuse me? <laughs> There's actually a God behind that, isn't there? What's interesting is that Jesus warns us about greed far more than he warns us about the dangers of inappropriate sex. See, greed is insidious and it gets in you. and You just don't realise. Just ask yourself the question, how willing am I to let go of my money for the sake of charity, for the sake of the furthering of God's purposes? When he asks, if we have a gift day, we're not planning one, relax. If we were to have a gift day, if there was a building coming up and we needed a deposit on a mortgage and we needed to raise funds for it, is your first thought, how much will I have left over at the end of the month and I can put that in? Or is your first thought, God, how much do you want me to give and then I trust you'll help me find that amount to give? It just shows not so much how much are our claws into our money, but how much is our money got its claws into us. It's always an important question to ask. Don't be blind to it. And the third one that Paul mentions is glory. This is verse 6. It's about status. It's about position. Verse 6, Nor, he says, did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. They could have marched and goes, we're apostles, We'd like a platform, please. We'd like a stage. I'd like a limo to drop me off around the uh, tradesman's entrance so I don't have to be bothered by the crowds. And I'll wade in and I'll preach God's word and then you can whisk me away in my private jet. <coughs> he could have said that if they had jets in those days and limos. He doesn't at all. He said, we did not come to you to seek glory. Now, glory is an interesting one because success has become another big idol of the modern age again. We've got X Factor and Pop Idol and all these kind of shows where, there's, I mean, actually there's a different heart and one's like Sewing Bee in the Great British Bake Off. Those people don't seem to be glory seekers. They just want to, they've got a gift and they want to see how well they can do in it. There's a different heart, I think, different spirit. But in terms of these kind of these musical ones, these more performance-led ones, there seems to be a real seeking. It's not about excelling in your gift. It's about being known and becoming a success, actually. There's a God, there's an idol underlying all that. I remember back at City Church a long time ago, we first rocked up, Chris Smith and Barry were leading, and Chris Smith said there was a guy who came up to him once who'd only just started coming and presented a list of all the things he's good at and how he can be used. And Chris was like, thank you very much. We'll come back to that maybe in six months' time. In the meantime, just get involved in the community, put the chairs out, pick up a tea towel. Don't think you saw the guy again. It's about seeking glory rather than seeking to be used by God, even if that means you remain in obscurity for the rest of your life. Are you okay with that? It's a big question. This is about desiring the stage rather than simply serving. This is about desiring acclaim rather than simple accountability before God. This is about seeking position rather than what I was saying earlier, a posture of the heart. It's position over posture. What's more important before God? It's actually flattery of yourself. You're buttering yourself up. You think you're worth it. You think you deserve it. You think it's your turn. We can all be prone to wanting applause. We're British, and when someone says thank you in front of a crowd and get them all to applaud you, we go, oh, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't me. It was the Lord. That British answer. Actually, you can receive credit. It's okay. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I appreciate that you appreciated it. That's fine. But we go very British about applause, but actually secretly 
we still love the fact, even if it's subconscious, that we're being applauded. We do like it, don't we? Because it bigs us up. Here's the other sportsman, Gavin. Football fans. Football fans in the house? Yeah, that's a few more football fans. Yes, there are. A few more football fans than we have cricket fans. Gavin Peacock. Have you heard of Gavin Peacock? Yeah, a few nodding heads. Gavin Peacock, football was in his blood growing up. His dad played for Charlton Athletic and ended up being manager for Gillingham for a while. His dad's cousin played for Newcastle United. It was in the blood. It was in the family. And so Gavin grew up thinking football is, this is, this is it. This is the thing. Football's what I'm going to live for. And as he grew up, his dad trained him up and taught him how to dribble in the garden and then he started getting onto youth teams. Eventually, he ended up having an 18-year professional football career for QPR, for Chelsea, for Newcastle United and others as well. He had a successful career as a midfielder and a, and a striker. And yet he says this, there came a point when he realised something was missing and he went along to a Methodist church evening service and while he was there, God spoke quite clearly to him and prompted him and he ended up going back to the minister's house for an after-church meeting and he started going regularly. He got saved. He said in that process, he realised what had happened. And this is what he says. This is his words. He said, soccer was my God. He said, if I played well on a Saturday, I was high. If I played poorly, I was low. How he played on the pitch and the acclaim or the boos that he received from the crowd, how many goals he scored, if his team won or lost, that made him high or low. That was his God. There presents the question. What is it that makes you happy? What gives you a buzz? Where do you go when you feel low? Is it to God? Is it to Christ? Or is it somewhere, someone, or something else? For Gavin Peacock, it was football. If he played poorly... Surely it should have been, I played poorly, must try harder next week, or I need to train more during the week, or look back at the video and see what went wrong, speak to my teammates how we didn't work as a team. No, he got depressed as a result, because football was his God. See, what happened after that, he got saved, and then he had to retire from football. He had to say goodbye to that God. And he had a knee injury, so he had to give up, but he managed to get a new career as a BBC broadcaster on Match of the Day and things like that. He was broadcasting to millions. All of a sudden, he had a new God, a whole new form of glory and acclaim. And when he sensed four years later that God was calling him to go into obscurity, to Canada of all places, to study God's Word at Bible College, he had another choice to make. Twice he had to decide who or what is my God. He had a new one. It's still football related, but it was a claim on TV journalism. And he walked away from it. He's now a pastor of a church, as it happens, now in Calgary, in Canada. And um, it was twice he had to make that decision, who or what is my God? Thankfully, he made the right choices. And he says this. Let me find another quote from him. He says, Turning from sin and trusting in Christ for salvation isn't just a one-time initial event. It is the substance of the Christian life. As Luther, Martin Luther once said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, which means 180 degree, turning away from, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Just because you're saved doesn't mean there are other gods vying for the throne of your heart. Whether that's other people, whether that's stuff, or whether that's Glory, status. 
the decision we get to make in those moments is whether or not Christ is the better yes. See, idols, actually, when you dig deeper to what it does to us, idols, these other gods, they drive us. Which can be hard work. But Christ, he calls us. It's very different. See, idols eat us up, actually. Christ feeds us. Idols ensnare us. Christ releases us. And yet time and time again, we don't make that choice, do we? Because they're all shiny. See you later, Jesus. I'm going to go and get some more stuff. Oh, there's, there's that popular friend who now wants to be my friend. I'm running after them. It's ridiculous. They're false treasures, aren't they? Yet time and time again, if we're not careful, even in small matters, we can make the wrong choice. It's about Jesus being the better yes. When we are faced with wanting to butter someone up, wanting to slide alongside someone famous and be seen to be their friend, someone who's popular, when we're in danger of that, it's recognising that Jesus is the better yes, is actually not seeking his, his approval instead, it's recognising that as one of his, you've already got it. It's not about seeking others' approval, it's about knowing in Christ you already have God's approval. You're already his. Why would you go looking for it elsewhere? And yet we do. When it comes to greed, when it comes to stuff, thinking we will be satisfied in stuff, and as we've already said, when you've got more, you want more. It never Does it ever satisfy? Never. It's just like eating dust. What's the point? Yet we do it, we run after it, don't we? Or are we satisfied in him? It's something we'll look at, look at in a new series coming up in the autumn. One of those sections we'll be looking at about I will be happy when I get X. I will be happy when X, Y, or Z happens in my life. And God's thinking, well, if that's your promised land, you can have it, but I'd rather you wanted me. It's a big challenge, isn't it? It's a big question for us. And so when we want glory, this is the third one, isn't it? Status. When we want that, it's recognising that what's more important is seeking after His glory. Because when we seek after his glory, we will be immediately satisfied. When we delight in him, we will discover the delights of our heart. When we delight in him first. Even, here's the thing, the Ten Commandments. Right at the beginning, God knows what our hearts are like. And even in the Ten Commandments, what's the first one? You shall have no other gods before me. Idols. Gods. John Calvin, famous... French pastor and theologian back in the day, hundreds of years ago, he said that the man's nature is a perpetual idol factory. Always coming up with another one that will be better than God. Always coming up with something else that will make us happy instead of God. Always. Which is why at the end of 1 John chapter 5, the very last verse of Paul's first letter, he says, 1 John 5, 21, tiny little verse, Kind of a bit almost throwaway. It's really important. Little children. Little children. You're not grown-ups because you get it wrong. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's all he says. Just throws it in there at the end. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He knows that our hearts are perpetually trying to come up with a new idol or keep going back to old ones we thought we dealt with. If I asked you what makes you angry, that might reveal a god, a, an idol at work in your heart. If you get angry when people let you down. If you get angry when you don't get what you want. If you get 
angry when people don't act the way you want them to act. If you get angry when things don't go your way when you're trying to, I don't know, where it is, business or whatever it is, in the workplace, what makes you angry? That can sometimes quite often reveal an idol at work in your heart. What occupies your thoughts when you're at rest? Quite often that's where we start dreaming and fantasizing about what will make us happy again, don't we? Quite often. If I had a chance to look at your diary and look at your wallet, would it, what would it tell me about you? About your priorities? If you had to look at my diary and my wallet, what would it tell you about my priorities and my values? Have a look at yours. It's worth looking. Or April will look at Derek's then. <laughs> it's a good question to ask of yourself. Sometime this week, just consider about your time, how you manage your time, how you manage your money, and see if it says something to you. It's worth asking. It's worth asking. And here's the thing. This is why Paul has a very different posture of heart. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. See, seeking after idols is being driven. It's about driving. And it's exhausting. Because we're never satisfied. Actually, when we seek after God first, it's a restful place, isn't it? If you look at verse 7, Paul describes his posture of heart. Verse 7 he says, but we didn't come with all these things, we didn't come with flattery, didn't come with greed, didn't come seeking glory, but, verse 7, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He wasn't trying to browbeat them into the kingdom and make sure they believed or tell them they got it wrong or have a go at the violent mobs. He wasn't like that at all. He was gentle, like a nursing mother. And then carries on, verse 8, and so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you've become dear to us. There's a gentility here, where as much as he would love to see the whole city saved, he wasn't driven, he wasn't going to try and make it work, he was going to rest in God's purposes, let God do the hard work, and in there, there was a restful posture of his heart, where he said, I'm just like a nursing mum, and I love you, and I just want to be with you so much, I'll give of myself. And then he repeats it again in verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you. Not a father wagging his finger at them and telling them they got it wrong and they must get, it, get their heads right and pass the exam. No, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you. And therefore, he wants them to get this and pass it on. Charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And there's the key. Paul knew that all of this was in front of God. Even when we act like he's not looking and we make our choices that go the other way, all the time God's watching. Not as a father who's wagging his finger, just simply as a father who grieves when we walk away from him in our hearts. He cares for us. And so verse 4, jumping about, this just brings out the thread. Just the second part of verse 4, he said, So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He knows God's always there. God's always watching not as a brow-beating father, but as a caring, considerate father who knows what's best for us. And then also, verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Which is why he implores them to walk in a manner worthy of being before God. Because he just knows that this posture of heart, I, what, what I love about serving you guys is that you have different expectations of me that I know other churches have of their pastors. And you allow me to be in a restful place. You allow me 
to be, sometimes I have sleepless nights because of what's going on, not very often, but sometimes stuff's going on, we're made of people. But, another pastor said to me yesterday, do you enjoy your role? And I said, you know what, I do. I said, be can make it easy for me because I'm allowed to rest in a place where I can just enjoy, not sitting back, I will labour. Paul says in here, I labour day and night to not be a burden to you. I will work hard, but not to make things happen. Just to run alongside a God who I can rest in, knowing that he's doing much more of the harder work than I ever can. It's not down to me how hard I work to make the church grow. It's down to him, and I'll run alongside him. It's different. As much as we, we labour, there's a rest in it. And I love it. Actually, I'm in a restful place leading you guys. I love it. I work hard, but it's restful. And that's something for all of us, whatever we're involved in. Whether you're facing situations at work, facing situations in your home life, whatever it might be. Maybe it's money, maybe it's health. There is still within that a restful place where we can almost sit back and allow him to take the steering wheel in the little choices and the big choices we make and realise that he has got our back, that he will work all things together for good. He knows what's best for us and he'll make sure they happen. Amen? There's one more verse, Matthew 11, verse 28. And then we're going to sing a song. It's a familiar, familiar verse to many of you, but we can often think about this as physical exercise and rest. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Running after idols, we can be blind to it, it can be deceptive, we cannot even realise we're doing it. But if we're willing to be genuine and honest with ourselves and sit back and go, am I? What's driving me? We then discover we've been exhausted by driving ourselves and running after things. But actually, he says to me, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Idols bind and burden us. There's a real drudgery in trying to seek satisfaction outside of Christ, basically. When you find satisfaction in him and in him alone, all of a sudden, there's a peace within the storm. There's a rest within the labouring. Just for a moment, just close your eyes. Just close your eyes just for a moment and just think, I'll ask those questions again and just see if Holy Spirit just prompts something in you that you'd like to talk to you about. Maybe if earlier, when I asked if you find yourself kind of trying to butter people up just because it furthers you rather than them. If you find you're prone to try and kind of be a bit more strategic in who your friends are, sometimes there, maybe there's something at play there. Maybe when it comes to stuff, have you been running after more things? Have you been running after more money or new shiny gadgets or thinking that you'll be happy when you get something rather than putting him first? We're allowed to enjoy riches. The Bible says so. 1 Timothy 5, he says, yeah, don't give all your riches away and don't despise them. Just be, just be generous within it while you have it. It's okay to have nice things. But where's your heart in that? And does it drive your choices? Or when it comes to status, do you seek the platform? Would you rather be at the front than at the back? Maybe there's something that God wants to speak to you about there. What makes you angry? What is it? What's the trigger that makes you, happy, uh, makes you angry more often than not? Maybe there's something at play there. What occupies your thoughts more often than not? when you're at rest.
or in a quiet place. Maybe Holy Spirit wants to speak to you about something. And if you don't know Christ as your all in all, as your everything, then can I implore you, even right now, today's the day. Don't delay it. It's a simple prayer. It's just saying, Jesus, I recognize you as the living Son of God who died in my place, that all my brokenness, all my dark stains can be removed in that sacrifice. They're dealt with on the cross, so I don't have to live without you forever, but live with you forever. And I turn away from the gods in my heart that rule my choices, and I want you to be my number one. That's all it takes. It doesn't even have to be those words, but that's the principle behind what it means to become a Christian, about being born again. It's about starting afresh with him in the driving seat, with him as your saviour, with him as your rescuer, with him as your Lord and your God. Do that now. Do that now. Even while we're singing the next song. Or I'd love to pray with you afterwards if there's anything you want prayer for. Any, if this has sparked anything, then please come and find me afterwards. I'd love to pray with you. I know David with some of the ministry team. If you want prayer for healing as well, anything at all. But particularly, even right now, if Holy Spirit has prompted something in you, Don't not deal with it. Listen to his voice. Respond to him. He's got your best interests at heart for his glory. Amen. Shall we sing?